0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carver City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and we have some great news for all our last Franken-fans. Got an email a few days ago from our distributor saying that the check disc for the Blu-ray Is being shipped to me. It's in transit now. What that means is this is basically a mock up of what the final disk will be. And I I have to go through and watch it, uh, check out all the different, um, permutations of it, watching the movie all the way through, watching it with the subtitles, watching it with both of the commentary tracks, checking out the bonus features to make sure that everything, uh, plays through correctly. Uh, the distributor will be doing likewise on their end. And as long as that goes without uh, any hiccups, then the next stop is, uh, or next step I should say is replication and just getting this, uh, Uh, made and out to all of you wonderful people Um, even if there is any kind of uh, minor technical issue with it it's usually not too complicated to fix at this stage it's just about uh, switching out files or something of that of that level of complexity so we are definitely seeing the end in sight pretty exciting Uh, hopefully it should probably arrive like tomorrow or the next day and then I can start going through that we also uh, teased a few episodes back about some special artwork that's going to be created uh, that we're going to be available for purchase to our Last Franken fans. And uh, that is in the process of being made right now by an artist, John Caron, the who designed the logos for Gila Films and Carpet City Cinema. And uh, probably looking at that being done and unveiled, and more details uh, given on that within like the next week or so. So a couple, a couple things happening that are pretty exciting to see with uh, Gila Films and The Last Frankenstein. I'm recording this podcast on... December 10th, yesterday, the 9th, would would have been the 107th birthday of Amsterdam's cinematic claim to fame. The one and the only Kirk Douglas, legendary actor, uh, producer, key figure in ending the Hollywood blacklist, uh, philanthropist. So, uh, a salute to Kirk Douglas there. Happy birthday, brother. Um, trying to think of what my favorite Kirk Douglas film would be definitely up there would be uh, Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick movie, the first of two films he did with Kubrick. After that, they did Spartacus together. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's definitely a really f- just a really fun film um, from 1954. Disney did also recommend a kind of a, a lesser known of his films for love or money, which is from the early 60s. And it's basically Douglas doing what Rock Hudson was doing at that time in like the Doris Day comedies. Uh, and it was made at Universal the studio that was making the Hudson and Day comedies. It was directed by Michael Gordon, who directed Pillow Talk, uh, the first of the Hudson and Day comedies. And uh, it's out on DVD, no Blu-ray release, but it's just uh, really fun to see him in that type of a role. It's not the only comedy that Douglas did, but that was definitely a genre that he uh, was more infrequent with uh, over the course of his career. So it was cool to see him in that. We had a couple major passings this last week, Norman Lear being one of the big ones, 101 years old, so nothing uh, nothing to be ashamed of there in terms of longevity. And, of course, just an incredible uh, career he had. I uh, worked in both film and television, but television is, of course, where he is really known as a uh, creator or co-creator and producer of such shows as All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son, Maude, Archie Bunker's Place, One Day at a Time, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I mean, it's a pretty jaw-dropping list of accomplishments right there. He also produced uh, Good Times, Silver Spoons, The Facts of Life, Square Pegs, um, 18 Emmy nominations, six wins, and you know, his content is, besides being popular and critically acclaimed, also just had a huge impact on what you could tackle on TV, uh, broadcast TV and and the prime time. Um, And of course, made uh stars out of people like you know carol o'connor and rob reiner uh so uh you know just incredible incredible body of work that he left behind like i said they did a lot on the big screen too he actually had an academy award nomination uh best screenplay nomination for uh the dick van dyke debbie reynolds comedy divorce american style and he and dick van dyke teamed up on another film called cold turkey which is the only movie that lear directed he directed and wrote it um and it's definitely a film I recommend. It's a lot of fun. It's got a really great cast. Uh, Gene Stapleton's in it before All in the Family. Um, and uh, Bob and Ray, the legendary radio comics. Uh, Bob Newhart and Tom Poston are both uh, in the cast. It's uh, definitely a, a really good comedy. It kind of pokes fun at a lot of different issues, uh, religion and... Uh, the whole premise of the film, it's about a town that's uh, trying to go without smoking for a certain amount of time in order to uh, uh, win this new plant to be put into their uh, community. Lear was also a producer and writer on uh, Come Blow Your Horn, which was a Neil Simon adaptation that starred Frank Sinatra that came out in the 60s, and The Night They Raided Minsky's, which was uh, an early directorial effort from William Friedkin before he uh, did The Exorcist and The French Connection. Also, side note, Burt Lars' last movie, The Cowardly Lion. And, uh. Lear also produced films like uh, The Princess Bride and Fried Green Tomatoes. So again, just uh, breathtaking scope to his career, and definitely one of the most influential uh, figures, uh, important figures in television history. We also lost actor Ryan O'Neill, age 82. Uh, He he first kind of Got the got the light shown on him uh, on the small screen really when he was on the uh, soap opera Peyton Place and he played the role of Rodney Harrington and that uh, you know elevated him to the position of being able to get some big screen roles and pretty quickly on uh, nabbed Love Story, and, which was an incredible hit for Paramount Pictures, and uh, basically made him and Ally McGraw stars and earned them both Academy Award nominations. And just throughout the 70s, uh, O'Neill racked up a pretty impressive list of movies, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Bray-Linden. Uh, he did three films with Peter Bogdanovich, uh Two of them were hits, uh, What's Up Doc, which paired him with Barbara Streisand, and Paper Moon, in which he co-starred with his own daughter, Tatum O'Neill. And O'Neill took home a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for that film, which Marked her as the uh, youngest uh, performer to win a competitive award at that point. And then there's a third film they did with Bogdanovich, both he and Tatum were in that as well, called Nickelodeon, which has some strong uh, a strong critical following, but didn't really uh, do anything at the box office. But he also, in the 70s, he did uh, The Main Event, which teamed him up again with Streisand, which was another hit. Uh, the Driver, the Walter Hill film, which is an absolutely terrific movie. It's my favorite uh, O'Neill performance uh, up to this point in terms of what I've seen of his work, uh, a huge influence uh, on the film Drive with Ryan Gosling, and uh, just highly, highly recommend that film. He was also teamed up with William Holden in Blake Edwards' Western Wild Rovers, which is, again, a film very highly regarded, but at the time didn't really have the kind of impact that it has gone on to uh, achieve, and that's probably because the film was kind of cut against uh, Edward's wishes, and later it was restored um going into the 80s though o'neil kind of you know he still had some successes but uh definitely that's kind of the the time where you see his star kind of start to dim a little bit. But, you know, he still turned up, turned up in stuff like uh, Irreconcilable Differences, which, you know, did make some decent money at the box office. And uh, Norman Mailer's uh, Tough Guys Don't Dance, which was a film that was kind of not understood at the time it came out, but is going on to become uh, this cult classic. And uh, Vinegar Syndrome actually released on Blu-ray a few years back. And, you know, he continued to work out right up to the end, you know, showing up in stuff like, you know, Terrence Malick's Night of Cups. I, of course, as a Perry Mason fan must point out that he one of his early uh, acting jobs acting gigs uh, was in an episode of that TV show. But yeah, he's, uh, of course, also known for his longtime relationship with Farrah Fawcett Um, that ended with her tragic death uh, from cancer. And uh, aside from Tatum, O'Neill, he's also the father of Griffin O'Neill, the actor, who you might remember from films like The Escape Artist and April Fool's Day. Uh, He had another son, Patrick O'Neill, who had a bit bit of an acting career, nothing too huge. He was in, like, Die Hard 2 and stuff. And his brother, Ryan O'Neill's brother, was Kevin O'Neill, who showed up in small parts in a lot of Ryan's films, but was acting prior to that. He was on the TV series of No Time for Sergeants. Now, what I didn't realize uh, about Ryan O'Neill was that his father was a screenwriter, uh, Charles O'Neill who uh, genre fans know a lot of his his credits probably the the best known one is he uh wrote the val luton produced horror movie the seventh victim now val luton was a uh, producer at rko in the 40s who made the series of horror films that have gone to become classics and are really recognized for their use of like film noir styles visual styles um and also their emphasis on psychological horror films like cat people and the body snatcher and the seventh victim was one of those O'Neill was also, Charles O'Neill, that is, was also a writer in the scripts for such horror films as The Alligator People and Cry of the Werewolf. He wrote the I Love a Mystery uh, films over at Columbia. So I just had no idea that his dad wrote all these uh, B uh, genre films, some of which I had seen. And lastly, we lost actress Marisa Pavan, age 91. Um, Her career was. Begin in the 50s, and that's kind of where most of her body of work is uh, remembered from, even though she continued to work into the early 90s. Uh, she uh received the Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination uh, for playing Anna Magnani's daughter in the uh, Tennessee Williams adaptation The Rose Tattoo. And that came out in 1955. And Magnani won the uh, the Best Actress Oscar for her work in that movie. And she's also started some other films in the 50s that people might be familiar with. She was in uh, the acclaimed Gregory Peck film The Man in the Great Flannel Suit. She was opposite Tony Curtis in the film noir The Midnight Story. Uh, she was in the biblical epic Solomon and Sheba. Uh, her first film was actually a John Ford movie, 1950 what price glory and uh, going into the 60s you definitely see a lot more television in her work uh, actually speaking of kirk douglas uh, she played kirk douglas's wife in the uh, miniseries the money changers an arthur haley adaptation that came out in the late 70s again definitely recommend that especially as a fan of 70s miniseries um, and uh, she was in real life uh, the twin sister of pierre angeli uh, the ill-fated uh, italian born actress, uh, who actually began her film career uh, before uh, Pavan, um, and that's kind of what led to Pavan getting into acting Is after her twin sister uh, got, got bit by the uh, cinematic bug. And Anjali, she starred in films like Somebody After the Lightspeed with Paul Newman and uh, the critically acclaimed film The Angry Silence, and she was uh, known for uh, a well-publicized uh, romantic relationship she had with James Dean. But uh, Anjali very sadly died at age 39 from a barbiturate overdose, which I believe there was some debate as to whether that was intentional or accidental. But uh, Puffan, she was married to the famed French actor Jean Pierre Almont, known for his roles in such films as uh, The Cross of Lorraine and Lily. And they initially married in uh, 1956, uh, divorced in 63, then remarried in 69, and uh, stayed married until uh, Almont's passing in 2001. So uh, tip of the hat to Marisa Pavan. Now, uh, a lot of interesting uh, upcoming disc releases have been announced in the last week. Uh, film Masters continues to kill it with their uh, tackling of uh, cult classic movies. Um, they've announced that they're going to be doing uh, putting out on Blu-ray Bur I. Gordon's 1960 horror film Tormented, starring Richard Carlson as a, a jazz pianist who allows his mistress to fall to her death from a lighthouse so it doesn't interfere with his uh, marriage plans. Of course, this film was riffed by Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was in the public domain, so they're uh, most of the DVD copies out there were just you know budget label releases, uh, not too not too high quality. Uh, Warner Brothers, uh, because I believe it's because it was distributed by Allied Artists, they have the uh, the really good elements on this, and they did release a r- uh, really nice DVD. There was subsequently a Blu ray released over in Europe, but it was uh, not taken from those really good uh, original elements. Instead, was taken from a kind of a print, I believe, that was not in the best of shape, and it also was not the original theatrical aspect ratio. Now, Film Masters, I tend to doubt they're working with Warner Brothers materials. Um, I mean, it's definitely a possibility, uh, but just, yeah, Warner Brothers doesn't really very easily strike licensing deals with uh, companies. And,. Um, even though the film's public like domain, you'd still have to have some kind of arrangement with them to access their elements. They describe uh, this upcoming restoration as being a 4K restoration from archival elements. I still feel, you know, obviously based on their past work, extremely confident that this is going to turn out very nicely. And uh, the extras they've already announced will include an audio commentary by uh, historian Gary Rhodes. They're going to have an archival interview with Bert I. Gordon, the uh director, writer, and producer of the movie, who has been affectionately dubbed Mr. Big because of his initials and his tendency to make movies in which there are enlarged uh, creatures like The Amazing Colossal Man or uh, Empire of the Ants. It's also going to have uh, an introduction with Mystery Science Theater uh, writer performer Frank Conniff. Uh, There is going to be the MST3K version of the film is going to be included on the disc, which is pretty exciting. And there's also going to be a new documentary on Bert I. Gordon's films from the 50s and 60s. So, pretty uh, stacked release. Looking forward to that. They also have a uh, teased that next year they will be putting out the 1976 drive in film Redneck Miller. Uh, not, not too much in the way of details on that, other than they did show some comparison work on their restoration on that that's in the works. Keena Lorber, uh, as per usual, has also uh, dropped some pretty uh, amazing announcements this past week or so, uh, one of them being the 1944 film Bluebeard, starring John Carradine. This was a movie directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, who is, he and Joseph, a guy named Joseph H. Lewis, were kind of known as the uh, princes of poverty. Row. They were filmmakers who tended to stay within the lower-budget uh, systems, uh, but were very acclaimed uh, filmmakers, very highly regarded. And Omer, you know, one of his best-known films was actually one of his studio films, uh, the 1934 uh, Lugosi and Karloff horror movie, The Black Cat. Uh, but he also uh, did Detour, which uh, was a mid-40s film noir that is uh, highly, highly beloved by people like Scorsese and then got the full Criterion restoration treatment. He did... Uh, Strange Illusion, which was kind of like a B-movie take on Hamlet. Uh, The Man from Planet X, which is this uh, very early entry in the science fiction uh, golden age of the 50s. And Bluebeard, it's kind of one of, um, after John Carradine pretty much was done with his time at 20th Century Fox, uh, following the Grapes of Wrath, you know, a lot of his work tended to be in low-budget movies. uh, If he in terms of like having lead roles if he if he was he's to continue to work in uh bigger projects right up basically to the end but it was basically like you know supporting parts and a lot of essentially guest shots within a cameos within a movie within a within a big budget movie but bluebeard is kind of one of his it's one of his probably most highly regarded uh, performances outside of his his work at Fox. And this is a movie that also is in the public domain, so it's basically had a lot of, you know, again, budget label releases. Uh, there was, uh, I know the Roan did a, a nice DVD of it, but apparently uh, Paramount had uh, done a restoration on it because even though the movie was in the public domain, they had acquired... Uh, the uh, original elements for it and had done a high def master and Kino Lover is going to be putting that out so that's uh, really exciting I never would have thought that film anytime soon would have gotten uh, a Blu-ray treatment and to know that it was overseen this restoration was overseen by a, a studio with which Paramount has a really high, high reputation for its restoration work on its back catalog and not just the Paramount titles it owns but also the other titles it's acquired from stuff like Republic and also from this Paramount deal just announced today uh, is that Kino Lorber is going to be putting out for the first time ever on any format. I think I don't think again, I don't think this was ever on VHS or Laserdisc. Uh, it's the 1977 film First Love, which is uh, one of the movies that Paramount was doing kind of in the in the wake of Love Story, speaking of Ryan O'Neill, to kind of continue to get that success. And uh, it's a romantic film between William Catt, of uh, The Greatest American Hero, and Carrie fame, and Susan Day, in between uh, her gigs at uh, The Partridge Family and later L.A. Law. So this is one I have really wanted to see for some time. Uh, again, especially since it's the best you can do, is watching... Uh, you know, rips uploaded to YouTube. But as a fan of uh, uh, kind of the the love story esque movies of the 1970s, and even the late 60s, stuff like Die of the Dolls, that kind of high gloss soap operatic affair. Uh, uh, this is definitely one that had been on my bucket list to check out and so glad that they're going to be tackling this. And for all the animation fans out there, this weekend they also announced they will be releasing, again, from the Paramount deal, coming from Kino Lorber, the 1941 animated film Mr. Bug Goes to Town. And this is kind of a significant film. Uh, it was made by the Fleischer Studios. Uh, Max Fleischer, the guy who, while Disney was doing Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck in the 30s, uh, Fleischer is out there with his Betty Boop and Popeye and then into the 40s with the Superman shorts. And... Disney uh, hit the feature length uh, format first with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, came out in 1937, huge hit. And Fleischer followed up in 1939 with Gulliver's Travels, which they did for Paramount Pictures because Paramount, of course, saw the success of Snow White. And Gulliver's Travels, a It went over budget but it still did really well at the box office but uh, because it went over budget paramount kind of held that against fleischer and penalized him like 350 grand and that kind of laid the groundwork for the uh, financial problems that uh would kind of help to lead to the demise of fleischer's success in relation to like disney and so the success of Golders travels paramount was like all right let's do another uh animated feature for christmas christmas 41 which was Mr. Bug goes to town, and they had the preview screening uh, December fifth, nineteen forty-one. Uh, critics liked it; exhibitors did not. They were they they rejected it. They were concerned about its um, whether it would be successful. And then, of course, December seventh was Pearl Harbor, and so the plans were scrapped for a Christmas release. When the film finally was put out, it lost a ton of money, and uh, that was when Fleischer was forced out of Paramount which, interestingly, Paramount would not release another animated feature film uh, for over 30 years until Charlotte's Web, produced by Hanna-Barbera in 1973. And that, Mr. Bug, would be the second of the only two uh, feature-length animated films that Max Fleischer uh, put forth. But glad to see uh, Kino continuing to work with animation. They did a bunch of releases of like frizz for cartoons like um, the pink panther shorts they did the jetsons movie from 1990 uh hopefully they could someone can do charlotte's web if paramount doesn't do that themselves because i love that's one of my favorite um animated films is the uh Hanna version of charlotte's web uh just uh, incredible voice voice acting and songs of that but yeah mr bug goes to town also known as hoppity goes to town uh coming to blu-ray all right let's move on to the movie of the week which For this week is, from 1944, the classic MGM musical Meet Me in St. Louis, directed by Vincent Minnelli. So a local theater, Proctor's Theater in Schenectady, where we premiered The Last Frankenstein, and it's a very well-known historic theater, has been screening a number of Christmas-related movies, one a week. And uh, last week's selection was uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, which, although not a Christmas movie in the you know, it's not a movie that you necessarily think of as a Christmas film. It is uh, associated with the holiday because it is the film that introduced the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, sung by Judy Garland. And the movie takes place over the course of one year uh, and is divided essentially into uh, each of the four seasons. So it begins in summer of 1903 then uh, ends in spring of 1904. And it centers around uh, the Smith family in St. Louis. Uh, and at the, uh, at the focal point of that is the second oldest daughter of the Smith family, Esther, played by Judy Garland. And we watch as she uh, tries to win the uh, attractions, uh, the uh, romantic interest of uh, the boy next door as another song in the film is so titled. And that's uh, John Truitt, played by Tom Drake. But it also uh, looks at the uh, family as a whole. There's uh, her older sister, Rose, played by uh, Lucille Bremer, who was born in Amsterdam, New York, uh, who herself is uh, trying to finally have a relationship with this uh, guy named Warren Sheffield, who she has uh, long been attracted to and uh, who he has some similar feelings uh, towards her, but they just never can seem to uh, get this relationship working. Uh, And uh, Judy Garland is often uh, involved in trying to uh, uh, finally help her older sister uh, get wedded. Uh, There's the uh, only son in the family, Lonnie, who's going off to college. And there's uh, two younger daughters, Agnes, played by Joan Carroll, and Tootie, played by uh, Margaret O'Brien, the wonderful Margaret O'Brien. And then there's the uh, parents, uh, Alonzo's the father. He's uh, often exasperated, but very uh, concerned for the well-being of his family type of guy who works as a lawyer and puts in a lot of hours. Uh, the very uh, patient and strong mother, Anna, played by the great Mary Astor. Uh, There's the grandfather, which is Mary Astor's father, uh, played by the uh, veteran character, Harry Davenport, who seemed to uh, manage to get a role in almost every uh, classic film from the late 30s through uh, the next 10 years, it seems. And and then they also have their maid, uh, Katie, played by uh, Marjorie Main, just uh, a short time before she would uh, get the uh, iconic role of Ma Kettle. And so the film, like I said, it follows them over the course of these seasons. Uh, The daughters are pursuing their romantic interests. Uh, The the youngest daughters uh, are are getting into uh, varying types of mischief. And then uh, what happens about uh, partway through the film is uh, what you would, I guess you could say, the antagonist of the film. It's not a person, it's an event, uh, which is the possibility of the family having to relocate to New York City from this lifetime home of St. Louis uh, as the father pursues a better job opportunity, which he wants to take to uh, provide better for his family. And kind of happening, one of the, an event that's kind of keeps being a reference from the very beginning of the film and constantly in the, in the background is the fact that St. Louis will be home to the World's Fair in the uh, year of 1904. The film was based on a series of autobiographical stories by a woman named Sally Benson, who essentially 2D Margaret O'Brien's character is, uh, she is a stand-in for her. And this is the second time I've seen this film. Uh, I watched it when I was a teenager. I remember we uh, would rent a lot of times from a Hollywood video. We had a Hollywood video and a blockbuster video in Amsterdam and some different independent stores here and there. But Hollywood had the bigger classic film selection, which my parents uh, really liked. So we'd often pick up movies from there. And and like I said, that was like probably 25 years ago. And so it was nice to see this again. compared to kind of like my takeaways from the initial viewing and also to see it on the big screen. And this is definitely, you know, it's, it's, like I said, this is considered a classic film. The uh, American Film Institute uh, voted it the 10th of the 100 greatest uh, American musicals ever made. And I definitely consider this a really, it's a definitely a good film. I don't think that it quite lives up to the memories I had of it. I think I had it kind of like on a higher plane, in, in uh, looking back, at having watched it before, but I can still see the things in it uh, that I enjoyed from a couple decades ago and really appreciated about it. Its its main struggle is that it's very, one of the main struggles is it's very thin on on who the characters are. Um, you know, you really don't know a lot about what makes, what defines these people's interests in the family. Um, you know, for example, the character of Esther played by Judy Garland, uh, other than the fact that she you know, has this very passionate crush on on this neighbor guy, um, and that she, uh, you know, obviously you, you can tell things about her uh, personality, like her, her morality and integrity, that she's a very good person and very cares about her siblings and her parents, but you really don't know anything about her in terms of, like, what her interests are, what she wants to do long term, or, and, and it's not just the you know, some people might say, well, she's playing a teenager in this film, and there's a, you know, she's preoccupied with teenage activities, you know, hanging out with her friends and, and uh going to, uh, you know, these social activities, and like I said, trying to date this guy, but if it, and if it was limited to just that one character, I could kind of get that, but it's really kind of a problem with multiple characters. It's the same issue with her older sister. It's the same issue even with, like, the mother played by Mary Astor. You know, you don't, Know anything really about their individual likes and dislikes in terms of like w- what drives their interests, what drives um, their their um, beliefs beyond just morality, just beyond the fact that they're good people? Because that's something the film the film does establish. That they're, these these this is a family of good individuals who do care about each other, who do love each other. They are moral people. Um, so there is that aspect, which defines their characters. But beyond that, in terms of, like I said, likes and dislikes and just what makes them tick, um, there's really not a lot of development there. I mean, I, I didn't think, like, I don't think they even mention, you know, there's references to the son Lonnie going off to college. I don't think they even mention, like, what he's going to college for. And there's reference to, you know, him going finishing college and then Rose going to college, the older sister. And again, nothing mentioned about, like, what she wants to do or... I don't think they even mentioned like what her beau is interested in. You know, I, I th- and I think, uh, the boy next door that, you know, is so pivotal to, uh, Judy Garland's character. I think there's just like one line at the end of the movie where he references, you know, wanting to be an engineer and that's it. Like, you don't even, you know, know anything really about him beyond that his or his parents or really anything. So that's definitely something that kind of stood out when I was watching it, um, this time that I hadn't really paid as much attention to before and also the fact that a good i'd say the first half of the film is uh in terms of pacing and uh structure and energy is a little it's a little weaker than the second half because in the first half of the film they're a lot a lot more essentially staged within the house that they live in this really nice to me it looks like a mansion uh you know the characters that's an interesting thing about the film is like you know what where what is these what are these people's social class? Are they supposed to be like middle class back then or upper middle class? Because they look like they're upper middle class, but they're kind of behaving in a way and talking about their finances in a way that I would associate more with just straight middle class. Uh, But they, uh, you know, they seem to have a really nice house that I would almost refer to as a mansion, but then again, houses were just bigger back then. You know, I see that in my own town of city of Amsterdam that, you know, so many houses that were built to be one family are now, you know, s- divided into multiple apartments. But, you know, like I said, this, part of the issue with the uh, first half of the film is there's a lot that takes place within the house, and it seems at times very constricted and um that doesn't have to be that way just because you're filming in one location or uh, whether it be a set or an actual location. Uh, you know, random example, one of my favorite, uh, one location films is a, a fifties B movie called shack out on one Oh one. And, you know, we'll probably dive into a whole episode on that at some point, but that's a movie that almost takes entirely, uh, a place it entirely at a roadside diner, uh, and which is you know interiors of a set, and just like the exteriors of like the beach around it, and it never feels uh, you know claustrophobic or anything like that. But uh, meet me in St. Louis like that first half. There is just a lot that's kind of restricted to the to rooms of the house, and just feels kind of uh, like I said, very very um, bound, very tight in terms of uh, location, and you, know, you just want to see the the film expand a little more beyond that. It's interesting too because the film you know, focuses on uh, how much this family loves St. Louis and they don't want to leave. They don't want to go to New York City. You know, the father's kind of oblivious to uh, you know how much this change is affecting them, but as a whole the family really does uh you know love the city in and they're really excited that the World's Fair is going to be there. All that being said, um the film doesn't really you know, show a lot of St. Louis or their their vision of St. Louis because a lot of the film takes place like inside the house or, um, you know, inside another building where they're having a party or, you know, just down the street from the house when the kids are going trick-or-treating, you know, it's never like really really going out and about into St. Louis, which I'm not saying it had to do that, but it, in light of how, like I said, uh, you know, how restricted location-wise and setting-wise the first half of the film is, uh, you know, it's just something that kind of came to me as I was watching it, like, this one doesn't even really, you know, try to sell you St. Louis beyond just the fact that the family likes it. Those two kind of issues aside of the character development and, you know, that first half being a little bit more, um, a little slower, it's still, like I said, this is a, a very good film. And I just want to kind of, you know, get those critiques out of the way and and look at what the film does have to offer because, you know, it didn't become this classic for no reason. And I think, Piggybacking off my first critique, that the characters are, you know, sketch, they're, they're very thinly portrayed. Uh, I'm not sorry, not thinly portrayed, they're very thinly drawn. Hand in hand with that, as a strength, working as a strength, is just the casting of this film. The casting is amazing. And it's a testament to the performances of. All the actors and actresses in this, that they sell these characters as completely believable and real and full blooded, despite the fact that they are so uh, given so little to work with. I mean, you absolutely believe this as a real family. I mean, I mean, you know, Mary Astor, even though she's not, you know, Judy Garland is the lead of this film, and just take a second to just talk about Mary Astor. I mean, she's a terrific actress. She goes back to the silent era. Of course, a lot of people know her from, you know, the Maltese Falcon. Uh, that's probably one of her most recognizable roles is playing the femme fatale in that. And it's a testament to her range that she could take on a darker character like that than play such a symbol of virtue and strength as she does in this film is Meet Me in St. Louis. And then you see her in works like Doddsworth, which is where she uh, play, has a great dramatic, romantic aspect to her character in that film. Um, she, she was an Academy Award winner. She won the Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar for the movie The Great Lie with Betty Davis but uh just a terrific actress and she did comedy too she was in you know, in Preston Sturges the Palm Beach Story uh so she she was someone who just brought so much she could bring so much to a character even when given little to work with you know one of the first films we talked about in this podcast was A Kiss Before Dying and in that she played Robert Wagner's mother um and she doesn't have a ton of screen time and again not a lot to work with in terms of that character but because she is such a masterful performer. It's like she knows, and I don't know if it's from the script or her experience or conversations with the directors or all of those, she knows who the character is supposed to be, even if she isn't, uh, you know, given the full picture on the page, even if the the script doesn't do the work it needs to do in terms of showing her uh, what makes her her character who it is, even if the script is just basically giving her, you know, kind of like a thinly, uh, thinly drawn person to work with. And it's more about just dialogue and action. She knows how to take that. And just through all the nuance of delivery and body language and, uh, you know, tonal inflections. She knows how to create this full three-dimensional character. I mean, you know from her performance in Meet Me in St. Louis that this woman is, you know, has deep, deep emotional Deep, deep emotional well she really you see that as the threat of having to leave st louis comes to her she has deep concern and care for the well-being of her children but she also has a lot of respect and patience with her husband she's a person of virtue like i said of strength at the same time uh, a great balance of like no nonsense uh to her and uh you know a dry sense of humor it's just a, a fully rounded character despite Which she creates despite the fact that, like I said, she doesn't really have a lot to work with. And that's uh, basically across the board. I mean, Judy Garland, basically the same boat. Like I said, her character, you don't really know a lot about her. But Garland, who is just such a great actress, you know, even though she starts off as basically like a teen actress and, you know, cements herself with The Wizard of Oz and plays in these Mickey Rooney movies and gets associated especially with musicals throughout the 1940s, she was a great just a great actress too, a beautiful singer, but also a great actress. And it's the exact same thing I would say about her as I would about Mary Astor, that she knew how to take, take what was given to her, even if it wasn't much, and to uh, turn that to, into uh, a completely believable, uh, you know, 100% detailed uh, person uh, who comes off the screen as as a real full-blooded character. Uh, you know, she kind of comes across as like the definitive Uh, American Americana girl of the turn of the century in this film. And it was a movie that she didn't even really want to do, interestingly enough. Uh, They really, she was really kind of tiring of these kind of of roles of the, you know, the um, stereotypical uh, young girl in love, young daughter, that kind of thing. And I wanted to be kind of moving on to other fair, but she ended up doing the film and uh, ended up loving it once it was uh, all said and done with. And of course, went on to marry the director, Vincent Minnelli, and they became the parents of Liza Minnelli and did several more films together. But again, just to kind of go through the cast, you know, same thing for Leon Ames as the father. Leon Ames was so good at playing the uh, good but constantly exasperated uh, uh, father or boss or what have you in films. You know, he's Fred McMurray's uh boss in the, the absent Minded Professor films. He was um, played a very similar character to Meet Me in St. Louis in a, a pair of films with Doris Day uh in the fifties on Moonlight Bay and by the Light of the Silvery Moon. And in a Peyton Place. Um, you know, he played Mr. Harrington, the head of the owner of the factory that was uh, the core employer in Peyton Place and definitely had a lot of similarities uh could be seen in that character. But the thing about Ames is it never felt like a like he was just relying on some kind of shtick or uh, you know some kind of uh, mannerism or just like phoning it in. It always, underneath that kind of like I said that exasperated that exasperation and frustration that he would often uh, channel, there was true dramatic acting ability he wasn't just turning his characters into two-dimensional cliches uh, which would have been easy to do honestly with the, those kind of characters but he underneath it all there was uh, dra- you know dramatic ability that you can see for example in in the scene where he uh, tells the family uh, that you know he wants to move to york city he can see how much it bothers them and he's trying to you know Basically, bluff his way through it and make it, seem like everything's gonna be fine. But you can see that he is bothered underneath by the, you know, the the discord that this is causing his family. Lucille Bremer, we got to take a moment to talk about her. uh, Playing again, like I said, Rose Smith, the oldest daughter. Got to show our Amsterdam pride. She was born in 1917. And had, uh, prior to Meet Me in St. Louis, appeared in uh, a couple bit parts in short films, but this was her first appearance in a feature film. And she was kind of the uh, being groomed by legendary MGM producer Arthur Freed to kind of turn her into, uh, you know, an, another musical star. And I think she does a really good job in this film. Uh, you know, I think she's, uh, especially since her character has a lot of great comic moments, she really uh, nails the timing delivery on those parts. Um Definitely her character is given less dramatic uh, opportunities, but she definitely nails to see every scene she's in. And uh, again, really sells the believability of uh, her character and really sells some uh, funny moments in the film. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, for her career, it just wasn't able, she wasn't able to be transitioned into that kind of like that star uh Status that uh, she was kind of being prepped for. She did do some more films after this at MGM. Uh, Probably her biggest role in terms of screen time was the female lead uh, in the uh, musical Yolanda and the Thief opposite Fred Astaire and again directed by Vincent Minnelli. But after a few films, MGM basically lost interest in her and uh, Let Her Go. Uh, She ended up doing uh, three films for the company known as Eagle Lion Films, all of which were released in 1948, lower-budgeted films. But a couple of them uh, are still very well-regarded. One of them was Ruthless, uh, directed by the... uh, great Edgar G. Ulmer, who we mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, as the director of Bluebeard, which is coming to Blu-ray, but that was a film he directed, Ruthless. And she was also in the film noir Behind Locked Doors. But that was it. Those those three films, the, uh, the other of those was Adventures of Casanova. They uh, all came out in 1948, and that was her uh, swan song. She ended up uh, relocating to uh, Baja and was married for a time to uh, Abelardo Luis Rodriguez, the son of the former president of Mexico. And down in Baja, uh, this is during the golden age of that area, she started several uh, r- resort locations. And uh, eventually, you know, she and her husband divorced, um, and she spent her time between uh, Baja and California. She ended up owning a uh, children's clothing boutique uh, before eventually passing away in 1996 at the age of 79. But she did come back to Amsterdam, I know, at least, at least once because... We have a cast member of *The Last Frankenstein* who is related to her. So, in *The Last Frankenstein*, uh, Amsterdam, well-known Amsterdam resident Bob Going, he played the hospital pharmacist uh, near the beginning of the film, who has to get Jason Frankenstein to uh, sign off on some drug request forms. And like I said, Bob was really is really well known in the city. Um, he was a judge and a lawyer and an author and historian. Uh, sadly, passed away uh, very young, very unexpectedly after the Last Frankenstein was completed. But I forget exactly how he was related to Lucille Berman. It was like he, she was like his great aunt, something like that. But he would talk to me about how you know she would come back to visit Amsterdam, and he would be there to as a younging to uh, serve her tea and stuff. So definitely after Kirk Douglas, she is our uh, most famous uh, luminary of the acting field. But like I said, she does a, a really good job in this movie, uh, especially considering it was her, her first role. Now, a lot of the, um, after Judy Garland, I would say a lot of the attention acting-wise for this film is uh, given to Margaret O'Brien, who's actually given an uh, honorary award for her performance in this film and her works of that year. And she totally deserves it. Because she, uh, just one of those... Child performers who's so incredibly gifted um, at acting. You know, some child performers are relying, even if they don't realize it, on just being cute and young, and that can kind of cover a multitude of sins. But O'Brien was someone who actually had acting abilities, um, and you know, people who worked with her talked about that. Just this, this she had, like an incredible ability to cry on on command, essentially. Um, just a. So, uh, such a remarkable talent for that age. I mean, when this film was made, she was only like six or seven years old. It was seven when it came out. So, uh, probably maybe six when she was filming it, but just incredible. And I got to take a moment now too, to talk about in, in connection with her performance, uh, is talk about the screenplay for this movie, because even though it has the issues with maybe not better, uh, defining these characters the humor in this film, especially as it involves the two younger daughters and a lot more of that focus I would say is on Tootie's character, it's just so hilariously dark. Uh, there's a lot of really dark, violent, grim humor in this movie, very black humor. And it, it really kind of uh, revolves around um, the two youngest daughters. Uh, like I said, the others played by Agnes, played by Joan Carroll. And their, uh, you know, constant, uh, you know, fascination with the horrid and the ugly. And, uh, you know, Tootie especially, she kind of comes across like a proto uh Wednesday Adams. although maybe she wouldn't really be a proto I don't know when the actual comic strip was written but uh you know she talks about having her dolls buried in a cemetery and um you know there's a whole section in the uh, fall part of the movie where she and Agnes go out trick or treating and um 2 is uh, uh delighted that the uh, her other kids in the neighborhood consider the most horrible I think it is the most terrible I mean they they just have and one of my favorite parts is when um when Agnes, the uh, the older of the two young ones, uh, she comes home at the beginning of the film and is looking for her cat, and, and the maid Katie, Marjorie Main, tells her that she uh, kicked the cat down the stairway, and that she could hear it its spine bouncing on each step. To which Agnes responds that she's going to stab her to death in her sleep, and it's just this incredibly dark, violent humor, which is hilarious because you know that's the real that's you know kids have that in them, and it's it, so it's very much it's interesting how like I said, despite any weaknesses with the script in terms of uh, handling uh, certain character development, at the same time, it understood the behavior uh, of its characters, like it understood the behavior of children at that age, and it's just really pretty remarkable, and and that's, I think, one of the most timeless things in some ways about about this film is uh, some of the darker aspects like that. And, you know, speaking of darker aspects, it's interesting, too, because kind of going back to what I was saying before, is the antagonist of this film is not a person, really. It's this, uh, the possibility that this family is going to have to move, right, to New York City. And on the surface, you might think, okay, what's the big deal? You got to move, you got to move. But it's really about more than that. What this, uh, what the move represents in the film. And what what that's about is just that it's the threat to uh, the family unit. It's the threat to the family strength. I mean this family is supposed to represent the ideal strong good family where everyone doesn't always get along and um they might not always do the right thing but they do love each other and they do care about each other and they strive to do the best and they work at it and when they make mistakes they uh, you know own up to it and the move the possibility of having to uh, move out of this uh, you know, city that they've grown up in and where they have all their connections and where their whole life has been based and they have to uproot and change all that, um, especially, you know, what that would do to the children. You know, plot-wise, it, it's like, you know, a threat to uh, their interests and, you know, the narratives of their relationships with their friends and romance and people that they're romancing. But, you know, on a much More thematic level and a much deeper level, it's really about that move representing a threat to what makes the family strong, you know, tearing them away from the life that they like, tearing them away from the foundation of what makes them uh, work as a family unit. And again, that's in a somewhat symbolic sense. For example, I've seen in families that I've known, I've seen a, a single traumatic event have a ripple effect. It really can uh, shake the unity of the family, and can really uh, cause separations, which take a long time to repair, if ever. And I think that this, the, in the film *Meet I Me mean, St. Louis*, that move to New York City, that kind of is a, a universal representation of that. It's them using that that possibility, that decision to move, uh, you know, as a symbol of those kind of, like I said, very traumatic threats to the family unit to the stability of the family and to the uh to the uh strength of the relationships that uh define us a good family and kind of going hand in hand with the the darker material like i was talking about in the humor is the film's also not afraid to kind of use that same darker approach to deal with this this threat to the family uh you know most memorably in the winter sequence of the film where uh, you know judy garland sings have yourself a merry Little Christmas, which is, you know, a very, it's a very, yeah, it's a very classic Christmas song, but it's also a very somber song. And, uh, of course, that scene is uh, followed by uh, Tootie, you know, displaying this, uh, you know, I won't give it away or spoil anything, but she displays this very, uh, you know, very uh, impactful emotional outburst, uh, you know, kind of channeling her feelings about the family having to move, and the family the film's very. I think it does a really good job in uh, portraying the the reality of the emotions uh, that you know a family like this would uh, express and endure uh, with such a change going on. Uh, the kind of the mixture of trying to be supportive of you know the parents' decision, the father's decision, uh, trying to put the best face on it, being upset about the change that's happening. You know, you're trying to balance what is best for you, with what your father thinks is best, or it could be a mother and in this film it's a father. Um, you're trying to balance, uh, you know, good intentions that might be res- with, uh, you know, poor decisions. You know, maybe the father has the best interest for the family, but is this really the right choice to make for them? And it really does a good, decent job of portraying all the intricacies, emotional, emotional intricacies uh, that would go hand in hand with a situation like this. And I think that, that that's also something that really, it was something that kind of because I was young, I didn't appreciate enough when I saw the film the first time, yet at the same time, it kind of planted seeds in the back of my head. Like, those scenes kind of spoke to me in a way that I maybe didn't realize the importance of uh, until I got older and, you know, I kind of see these things happening in real life and you, you know, kind of appreciate that aspect of the film and uh, what it was trying to communicate. Speaking of uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, songs in this film were Uh, the original songs of this film were mostly, if not all, by uh, the team of Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. And, you know, The Christmas Song, of course, is one of the most famous from the film. Also, the Trolley Song, uh, which was nominated for uh, the Oscar that year, which I don't know how well, people of this era are familiar with that song, but it was a big deal when it came out. Uh, you know, it's a fan of all-time radio. I listen to a lot of episodes of Abby Costello's radio show, and they would have a singer on that show all the time uh, uh, belting out that song. It was a, a big deal when it came out, and The Boy Next Door was a, a pretty good hit, too. Uh, the film actually was nominated for a total of four Oscars, aside from Best Song. It was also nominated for Best Screenplay, Best Music, and Best Cinematography. George J. Folsey shooting this and uh, you know showing off the glories of uh, 1940s MGM Technicolor musicals. The film, though, was a, uh, a huge hit. Big hit with the critics, big hit at the box office. It went over budget, ended up with a budget of uh, $1.5 million, which you got to remember that's 1944 money, but ended up uh, bringing in... In its initial release, uh, it brought in uh, like six and a half million. And then over the the complete time of its run, a lifetime run, it brought in uh, close to 13 million dollars. So in kind of contemporary money, that would basically be like equivalent to being made for like 26 million dollars and then bringing in like 223 million dollars, which is insane uh, profit margin. So, yeah, this film was a really big deal eventually led to a much later on a broadway musical there are also a couple of tv adaptations uh in 1959 as part of the general electric theater there was a two-hour tv adaptation which i haven't had a chance to check it out it is on youtube i don't think there's any kind of official disc release but i really do want to watch it because the cast of it sounds incredible it's got uh tootie uh, played by uh young patty duke the grandfather by edwin uh esther is played by Jane Powell. Uh, you know, taking on the Judy Garland role, with Tab Hunter as the boy next door, a Jean Crane as the older sister, Walter Pigeon's the father, Myrna Loy's the mother. I mean, this is a pretty insane cast. Um, a young Lois Nettleton's in it, and also uh, one of my favorite character actresses of the time, Rita Shaw. And uh, then in 1966, they uh, wanted to turn it into a TV series. So they shot a half-an-hour pilot, and it did not get picked up, but you can see that it is included on the uh, Blu-ray release of the film. Um, Shelley Febre from, uh, you know, in between basically the Donna Reed show and many years later, Coach, uh, took on the Judy Garland role of Esther. Uh, Celeste Holm was the mother. Those are kind of the two uh, you know, better-known uh, uh, characters in the actors in the film. And Rita Shaw was brought back yet again to play the maid. Um Interesting thing about the uh, original Meet Me in St. Louis is that we are still blessed to have two of the cast members still living. You know, uh, Mar- Margaret O'Brien is still with us, uh, in her mid eighties, and June Lockhart. I should have also called out, called out that earlier that June Lockhart is in the film. She plays uh, the character of Lucille Ballard, who is this uh, this girl who. Uh, The sisters think is trying to pursue uh, Rose's beau, the the guy that Rose, the older sister, is interested. She and uh, Judy Garland think that uh, June Lockhart is after her guy. And June Lockhart again, also still with us in her nineties now, and have went on to become one of the most iconic TV moms ever through uh, Lassie and Lost in Space. But you know, she, her career goes back to 1938. Uh, she made her film debut at MGM in their version of A Christmas Carol, uh, playing one of the Cratchit children. Because in in the film, her Bob Cratchit and Mrs. Cratchit were played by uh, June Lockhart's real life parents, uh, Jean Lockhart and Kathleen Lockhart. And this was again, like I said, she wasn't even 20 yet when this film uh, Meet Me in St. Louis uh, was released and had already appeared in not just A Christmas Carol, but she had played Gary Cooper's sister in Sergeant York and had appeared in uh, films like uh, All This in Heaven 2, which was a, a you know, Academy Award-nominated Betty Davis vehicle. And the thing about, I think, Lockhart is that sometimes, it, I think her, her position as this, you know, like I said, this definitive TV mom uh, kind of becomes, uh, looms larger than life, and you can kind of sometimes forget how just how good of an actress she was, and uh, you know, because she was playing these moms, how beautiful she was, you can kind of get lost in the shuffle. And she, you know, I love seeing her turn up in anything. I mean, she, you know, of course, Barry Mason gets stars on there, but also she was in some uh, film noirs in the late 40s, like T-Men and uh, Bury Me Dead. And of course, genre fans, you know, know her from stuff like Troll and, uh, you know, continue to act. I mean, she the recent Lost in Space series that was on Netflix, was it? Uh, she did a voice cameo uh, for that. So, yeah, just uh, a big June Locker guy. Uh, so glad that she's still with us, her and Margaret O'Brien, both. Pretty pretty wild that they're uh, you know, two actresses from two key actresses who went on to have uh, really good careers are still with us from one of the you know, definitive uh, musicals of the golden age of Hollywood. So yeah, again, I definitely uh, did enjoy seeing this film, uh, revisiting it, and again, it was cool to see it on the big screen. With an audience, it was a really good turnout um, for the screening, and so it was cool to see how they reacted uh to the film, and they really did enjoy that that dark humor I mentioned. And it's definitely is, you know, even though it's a film that you know takes place across the span of an entire year, it is a really fitting time to watch it at Christmas. So if you have a chance to check it out in the next couple weeks uh, before the holiday hits, I definitely recommend it. So that's uh, Meet Me in St. Louis from 1944. Alright, well thank you very much for listening to this episode of Carpet City Cinema. Please continue to uh, like us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and give us a, a thumbs up or five-star review or whatever whatever that system may be utilizing uh and continue to engage with us on social media and until then have a great week